Welcome to Earthshot Now, a podcast that is part of the nonprofit Earthshot, where we are inspiring people to take climate action through a positive vision of the future using cool, clean tech. The podcast is about people, places, tech, and climate change. I'm your host, Mark Bernstein. On our shows, I talk with people from different walks of life. We talk about what they do, how they got to where they are, and what climate change means to them. Everyone has a story to tell, and everyone's perspective on climate change is different as well. It doesn't matter whether their work has direct impact on the climate, or the changing climate will directly impact what they do, or maybe they just have a passion for inspiring others to take action. We all have a role to play. Before we go to our guest, it's time for a short segment I call Clean Tech is Cool. We spent decades trying to motivate people to take action on climate change. And yes, 20 years ago, clean tech was expensive and it didn't always work too well. But that has changed. Clean tech is cheaper and better. And it is so cool. Today, we'll talk about microgrids. The existing healthcare center at the Ayilo II refugee settlement in northern Uganda serves more than 12,000 South Sudanese refugees out of a cement block building and a few tented structures. The settlement has wells that pump water to several access points on a rotational basis, but there's no direct water supply to the clinic. Unreliable electricity affects caregivers' ability to deliver constant care, especially when performing tests for malaria, a critical concern in the area. In August of 2019, stable power, clean water, and an increased capacity to deliver care was delivered in the form of a 40-foot shipping container that had been converted by Arizona State University researchers led by Nate Johnson in a self-sustaining medical clinic in a box. At its heart was a microgrid powered with solar and batteries that provides water sterilization, lights, and air conditioning in a self-contained clinic. So what is a microgrid? Well, it is a small grid. <laughs> Seriously though, our homes are connected by electric wires to a large electricity grid run by your local utility. A microgrid is a small freestanding version of that. It can be standalone or it can connect to the larger grid, but with the ability to flip a switch and cut itself off or island itself from the rest of the grid. It can consist of several buildings, many buildings, one buildings, which are sometimes called a nanogrid, or even you can think of yourself you, as a picogrid that say you have a backpack solar panel, which you'll have heard about in a different podcast, an iPhone and some headphones that's all connected together and you're your own little grid. These are happening across the country in many different areas. The research from GTM counts 1900 basic and advanced operational and planned microgrids in the US and the market is expected to grow quickly. There are cool solar and battery powered microgrids popping all over the place. There's one in Brooklyn, one on Alcatraz, a winery in Sonoma, California, and in a big way in Puerto Rico as they rebuild from Hurricane Maria. Microgrids can be basic. Think of a hospital or a building or a factory with a diesel generator in the basement or outside. It can provide some power during a blackout. Many of these companies, they're seeing diesel generators as the fossils they are. Kaiser Permanente, 
a large healthcare provider, is planning to demonstrate a range of energy innovations at a hospital microgrid in Ontario, California. It incorporates renewable energy and they are showing how they can move away from diesel generators. The Ontario project aims to bring renewable energy and resilience to hospitals, especially those in disadvantaged communities. The Ontario project includes 2.2 megawatts of solar, a one megawatt fuel cell, and a nine megawatt hour battery. They say this will be the first hospital that will be capable of islanding without diesel and can operate 10 hours or more in island mode. New technologies, efficiency improvements, and especially software and artificial intelligence has helped to create these innovations. In particular, machine learning is enabling intelligent integration of diverse resources. Smart design and software can create microgrids specifically designed to integrate a variety of distributed renewable energy, like solar, like wind, batteries, fuel cells, and they can create microgrids designed to provide what the electric utility industry calls six nines, 99.9999% reliability. Or the microgrids can be designed for maximum resilience, or they are even nesting microgrids within microgrids. And that's all being able because of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and other software capabilities. Now this is cool. All this talk of resiliency in microgrids leads me to our guest today, Catherine Hammack. Catherine is a pioneer in deploying sustainable and energy efficient technologies. As a former Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Energy and Environment, Catherine was instrumental in motivating the Army to recognize the benefits of renewables and efficiency for resilience, cost savings and the environment. She is currently Director of Special Projects for Green Business Certifications Inc which independently recognizes excellent in resilience buildings power and power infrastructure. In her spare time, she volunteers as director of the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning, and is an advisor with MK Advisors. Catherine, welcome to Earthshot Now. Thank you, Mark. I'm glad to join you today. I'm really glad to have you here today. You have a lot of great perspectives to share with us. So let's go back in time. You. I uh, went to college, got a degree in mechanical engineering and focused on heating, ventilation, air conditioning. Talk about what drove you to do engineering and that application in particular. Well, Mark, I found early on in life that mathematics was easy for me, unlike others. And my father and one of my brothers were engineers. So I guess it runs in the family. I went into HVAC because my favorite class at school was thermodynamics, which is the physical science that deals with the relations between heat and relationships between all forms of energy. That's pretty cool. Um, and, you know, of course, we all live in buildings that need it. So the changes have been evident and um, it's a really great application. So at some point you you were doing things and you began to look at climate change, sustainability, renewable energy. What drove you to that part of your career? Well, right out of college, I worked for carrier air conditioning. And one of the focus areas was energy efficiency. I met several folks in networking and at conferences who wanted to define high performance buildings. And we organized a nonprofit called the US Green Building Council and developed the LEAD program or Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. 
it's evident that climate change is affecting our energy use. Renewable energy and sustainability help to mitigate the effects of climate change. So let's go back and talk about that for a bit. So um, uh, the LEED standards were very important in motivating builders and then states to put in regulations to really improve that. Maybe can you talk a little bit about how sort of, you know, the success of that, what, what it really drove to the change that happened? Sure. If you look at building codes, building codes are the worst possible building you can legally build. So building codes don't tell you what the art of the possible is. They change maybe once every five to 10 years, but many cities, counties, and states have building codes that are over 20 years old. So what we tried to do with LEED was talk about the, um, the state of the art, what you can do, what you should do, what you could do, and give you a menu of things. Several things, if you're going to say you have a high performance building or a green building or a sustainable building, there's about a dozen things you, you must do. So those became requirements or prerequisites. And then we have a menu of things that you could do. And the more of these you do, the greener, the more high performing, the more sustainable your building is. Yeah, that's great. And, and the other thing that came out from that, of course, was not only showing what you can do, but uh, the U.S. Green Building Council was really um, influential in showing people that it saved money. Right? Absolutely. It reduced your bottom line cost because if you pay attention to how the building's constructed, your walls are better, you're better insulated, um, you've sealed up gaps and leaks, and therefore you need a smaller heating and cooling system, and therefore you use less energy. And if you pay attention to things and do things smartly from the beginning, uh, then there is a reward. Your, your building's better, it's, it can stand up longer, it's more comfortable, and uh, people are healthier in them. Yeah, that's great. And it's great that you were at the forefront of that. Um, so going on in your career in 2010, President Obama appointed you as Assistant Secretary of the Army for Installations, Energy and Environment. It sounds like a big job. What was the job description that you were given? It was a very interesting job description. It was actually uh, one paragraph in um, code. So you know, you went to that and you read that one paragraph, didn't tell you a whole lot. But in the army, there's seven civilians appointed by the president who exercise civilian control over the military. And this has been passed down in history, really came from George Washington, who said he did not want the United States to be a military dictatorship and wanted the military to be run by civilians. The job I had as one of those seven civilians was pretty broad with a focus on policy and budget for all army installations worldwide in the areas of energy, construction, environment, and facility operations. The army is the biggest landholder in the Department of Defense and the largest electricity user in the federal government. So the responsibility was pretty broad. That's, that sounds pretty cool. So 
you started pretty early on kind of working to convince the army that they should care about climate change, renewables and energy efficiency. Um, why should the army care about those things? Well, the US Department of Defense has long acknowledged the threats posed by climate change, recognizing that sea level rise, uh, extreme weather and, and changing climate drives political instability in trouble spots around the globe. Whether it's droughts or wildfires, um, storms and flooding, they already impose significant costs for military installations. You know, certainly the Navy is seeing rising tides affect their coastal installations. But in addition, the Air Force and the Army have seen the impacts of extreme weather events take down power both on and off base, impacting roads and bridges, water supply. Um, so the Army is focused on minimizing vulnerabilities and risks to their operations. So if all power supply comes across public power lines, then the military base is just as vulnerable as the community that they're supposed to serve. So why not just throw in some diesel generators or natural gas generators? Why, why renewables then? Well, historically that's been what the uh, standard was, uh, plop a diesel generator down behind each critical building. But that, only last you as long as you have diesel in the tank. So it might ask, last you anywhere from a couple hours to a couple of days. It doesn't give you that longer term resilience. And so really what we're striving for is net zero, net zero operation. So you produce as much energy as you consume. And you only get that out of renewables. And there's many different forms of renewables, whether you talk about wind, solar, um, biomass, uh, geothermal, biodiesel, uh, you have a lot of options. And what you select depends upon your geography and your geology. I mean, and, and that's the good point because the argument to produce their own power was because they wanna to have to be connected to the grid, to the outside world. But if you're using diesel, you are connected to the outside world, unless you have an oil well on the army base and that's not very prevalent. So um, that's, you know, that resilience aspect is, is really important in the work you've done. And so where does energy efficiency fit into that as well? Well, that's, we created a net zero triangle and you really start at um, the top and it's an inverted triangle and you start with energy efficiency. That's use less energy, use energy where and when you need it. Don't waste energy. And then as you move down to the, through the triangle, you things like reuse energy, which could be um, waste heat from exhaust stacks, um, even heat that comes out of some of your water lines, you can recover that heat. And so as you focus on energy efficiency and reducing your demand, then your supply or the amount of renewable energy you need is much smaller. So they are like a, a teeter-totter. You've got to get everything in balance, your supply and your demand. Yeah. And, you know, the less you use, the less you need, right? So it's, Absolutely. It, it really helps. 
Um, so um, earlier in the year, you know, we saw massive problems in Texas from the ice storm and the cold and, and the grid was having a lot of problems. Um, you know, and, and that's sort of the problems of a centralized grid. What do you see are some of the opportunities coming out of that for, you know, the way you've thought about the army for thinking about broadly how we deal with the future of the grid? In my work with GBCI currently, we have a program called PEER, which is your performance in energy and energy efficiency and renewables. And you look at microgrids. Microgrids really bring everything together. Microgrids give you that balance, that uh, ability to connect and disconnect from the power grid. And in the peer program, we have certified several hospitals that recognize there's going to be times that they need to disconnect and they need to be able to operate. And there is a science to that ability to connect and disconnect. It's not easy. There's also a science to a power grid in that you don't ever want to be at the end of a long power line because if anything happens downstream, you are without power. You really wanna be within looped systems. But what a large utility can do is they can have microgrids at points in their system with the ability to disconnect, which makes the rest of the power grid stronger. So then you can schedule and program those disconnects to balance your system so that you maintain the power levels. And then I think in Texas, you had several major power plants that went offline for multiple reasons. Uh, some of it was lack of natural gas to power them. And you had a cascading effect, which tripped then power plants within the grid. I'm pleased to hear reports of microgrids that were able to disconnect and were able to remain operational, which really reinforces the whole distributed energy model. Yeah, because if you had, if the utilities themselves invest in these things, they don't have to depend on just a few power plants and suddenly shut down because they just got too cold, right? And, and, and things froze up. Um, yet the solar panels are working just fine. Uh, and because it was after the, right after the snow, it became bright and sunny and not really cold, but icy. Uh, and, and that you can, you know, as you get this huge influx of demand that they had from heaters, right? you can you can kind of trade them off with some of the microgrid stuff. So the whole, you know, it, it doesn't mean that every house has to be its own, you know, nanogrid, but, um, you know, the changing climate is going to get us to rethink how the whole grid operates because right. we're going to have face these things. Well, and we're seeing community solar, which I find absolutely fascinating. So a neighborhood might put solar over a playground or a parking lot or their community center and then be able to isolate that community from the main power grid and have a gathering point where everyone can go and you're, you're safe and you're warm and, and your kids can play, but you have contributed to the resilience of your neighborhood by supporting a community solar. And some of them have gone much bigger where they're able to support all the houses in their neighborhood, 
with their community solar and have battery storage and incorporate some of the nanogrids with the microgrids. We're just seeing this whole um, building to grid and grid to building communication enhanced with digital technologies. And so I think it's just fascinating to see where we're going to go in the future. Right. It's not going to be old dinosaur. And, and that is a good pitch for another podcast that we have with Karina Kumpi, who is um, COO of a company called Sunshare, who does community solar. And so if you want to check out community solar, go listen to that other podcast. Um, and we had a really good discussion in that about how those things work. So back to the army bit, was there a project or two that, you know, you're most proud of or that was so like out there in the future or something that just worked so well that you'd like to chat about? Well, there's one project that, you know, as you look at it in hindsight, it made sense, but it took us years, uh, two governors, several different um, political officials to get through. And that was in Hawaii on Oahu. So if you think about Hawaii and you fly in there, that airport in Honolulu and all power generation is at sea level in the tsunami zone, much of it built on landfill or coral reefs. That's a risk to military bases and to the community. So the army worked with the local utility to donate some land on an army base that's 900 feet above sea level. The average height above sea level in Honolulu is less than 20 feet. So it's, it's pretty much at risk. So the local utility built a biodiesel plant and that biodiesel plant powers an army airfield, an army base and a community hospital. So you're able to restore power to the community. You're able to ensure the military can operate and aid in civil affairs should there be any disaster. Um, we also worked in New York to modify a power plant that was on an army base and designed to operate with coal. It had been abandoned for several years. And so we worked with the private sector to switch to a biodiesel, a biofuel, sorry. Um, it really was biomass because in upstate New York, you look at what is available resource. And a lot of it were um, clippings from forestry management practices. I remember going to one community gathering and they asked if we were going to burn all the firewood in upstate New York. The answer was <laughs> no, we're going to burn leftovers. Um, the things that are not useful in paper that are not useful in making timber, but they're clippings if you think of branches and, and things like that. Um, and the, the plant can generate enough power for the base and the surrounding community. And I know you asked for two examples, but let me give you a third. Third is um, great. The third example is in Georgia. And there the Army worked with the local utility to build three large solar fields, almost 100 megawatts, on three different Army bases. Georgia decommissioned several coal plants and replaced that power with solar. So a, a key point in all these projects is that they were funded by the private sector. No taxpayer funds were involved and the army doesn't pay any more for electricity. In fact, these projects are delivering secure power from on-site generation 
at lower cost than dirty grid power. So it's sort of a win-win-win. And in that case, probably the private sector was more able to get better financing because they had a customer like the army to buy the power. Because you need in those cases a secure customer. And Absolutely. Absolutely. And we stay connected to the grid so that they could both power the base and the um, local community. But in cases of emergency or power outages or et cetera, we had first right to the power and were able to disconnect to ensure that we were able to maintain operations and support the community in disaster relief. Yeah, but it's really important. And, and during your time there was you know, the Defense Department really pushing out to solar and other things really helped the market. It helped bring prices down. And people don't understand it was a real driver for the success we see today, and particularly in the solar market. So thank you for those things. Um, the other question I want to ask is, so you entered a field engineering and worked for companies and the Army, which is kind of pretty male-dominated. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that was like and what kind of hurdles you had to overcome and maybe some lessons for other women who want to enter into fields that are, you know, dominated mostly by sort of the male types? Well, I found that you have to earn respect in every organization you join. And so sometimes you have to clearly articulate your resume, but um, more often you lead by example speaking up and knowing your subject. Um, I remember someone once saying to me, when you first got here, I thought you were a token, but now I realize you know your shit. Pretty blunt, but you have to have confidence in yourself. You have to have confidence that you know your subject and you have to speak up. Um, and not everybody is comfortable doing that. And I mean, did you find you had to be more than your male counterparts in those areas? At times, yes. And I probably had to be more aggressive than is usually my nature. Um, I found it interesting in the army. Um, I knew I stressed people when they started yes sirring me instead of yes mamming me. <laughs> um, and it was very funny one time we were in a very... Um, I won't say tense conversation, but it was a very intense conversation. And um, one of the three-star generals who worked for me spoke up and someone yes mammed him. <laughs> and that person got all embarrassed, but he started laughing. He thought it was funny because he said, you know, this shows that we have achieved the diversity that we, you know, we, this ma'am and surf kind of thing was sort of hard to get used to. Um, but when you treat people as equals, your gender disappears, as does your race. Is you're focused on the subject, you're focused on the activity. And I, I think in the military, maybe you've seen more of that. Right now we have an a African um, secretary um, who is Defense Secretary, uh, Lloyd Austin, wonderful man, uh, worked with him when I was in the Army, and I think he will do well. He commands respect, not because he's African-American, um, not because he's big, but because he knows his subject. He knows his shit. So 
I think you have to command respect and earn that respect. That's great advice. And, and everybody needs to do that, but it really seems for minorities and women, it, it's a little bit harder and it's really, um, you know, you do have to work a little harder. Hopefully that will change. I also think somehow we need to figure out a different term other than sir and ma'am that's gender neutral uh, yes. that military and others can use. And we're starting to see that in other areas. It's time to figure out one, one there as well. Um, I don't have one off the top of my head. I was thinking, I don't either. With, you know, <laughs> um, yes, person, that doesn't quite work. It's, no, uh, it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, uh, challenge out there to listeners, help us find a different uh, pronoun to use. Um, well, thanks. Uh, this has a really been a great conversation. So I always ask my guests a couple of things before we, we end. One is a fun fact, something you find interesting and and do you have one? I don't know if it's a fun fact, but I believe you need to walk the talk. And that's what I've tried to do my whole life. Not just talk about climate change adaptation or mitigation, but do something about it. So um, I've just had 15 trees planted because I do think we need to focus on um, some reforestation to help mitigate the effects of climate change. I, I drive a hybrid electric and run 90% of the time on electricity. My lights are all LED. I use a, a heat pump to heat and cool my house. Uh, the solar panels are ordered and battery storage is about to be installed. Um, and I'm working to go net zero on a nano grid in my home. And I believe that with a little effort, we can all reduce our carbon footprint resulting in a more healthy and resilient environment. Um, and do you, have, do you have one of those you would like to share? as a climate challenge or something else on to the audience? Well, I, I actually think everybody should put solar on their roof. It, we have seen an extension of the tax incentives coming from the federal government. The price of solar has dropped phenomenally. It is cost effective to put it on and it's the right thing to do. And you don't need to pay for it, right? Most of the companies will come in, put it for free, and you're just paying for the electricity, and they guarantee you paying less. Right, right. Um, so I think there's a, a lot you can do. I also am a, a consummate volunteer. Um, I'm on several nonprofit board of directors, generally with organizations that are working on decarbonization and uh, distributed energy systems with microgrids. So I think the future is going to be a network of microgrids that leverage digital technologies to connect and disconnect in coordination with energy storage to ensure that power is provided. I'm, I'm excited about the future. Yeah, I am too, because you know, technology has caught up to the things we've tried to do for the last 20 years. And in 2010, it was hard to do some of the stuff that you were doing. But it, it's easier here in, in, uh, now because technology has really improved. And when I was in the Clinton administration, we were trying to do some of those things. It was really hard because it was expensive. The stuff didn't work that well. We had all these great ideas. We were talking about microgrids, but, you know, really. Uh, and now all these things are here and we've just got to, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do at Earthshot is change the dialogue and show people how cool the tech is, show people how it, they don't sacrifice. They actually... Um, it's better, it's cheaper. And the work you're doing really helps motivate that and push some of those ideas out. And, and that's part of this podcast. And what we're doing is to try to 
you know, get people to know this stuff is cool. That's right. And, you know, I don't want to hear someone say we're going to do a microgrid pilot. The piloting is over. The technology is here to stay. We know how to do it. We have guidelines and programs just like LEED for buildings. We have peer for microgrids. Um, now's the time to step up and do what's right for your community, your city, your state, university, hospital, whatever it may be. There is an application that is tried and true, examples to follow, and now's the time. And, you know, it's clearly true because of the Defense Department, right? Because they can show it, they prove it. And if they do it for resilience and climate change, uh, you know, it, and it is cost effective, they've already proven it. You're right. There are no more pilots anymore. Now it's just, just go do it. Well, thank just you. Just do it. Sounds like someone's logo. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we don't get sued for that. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us today, Catherine. It was a really great chat. Thank you, Mark. I've enjoyed it. I also want to thank Dustin Chang for producing our podcast. Nikhil Jane for supporting the development of the podcast and our listeners for tuning in. Please follow Earthshot on Twitter at EarthshotG and LinkedIn at Earthshot. Let us know about new cool clean tech you've seen that maybe you'd like us to highlight and feel free to comment and suggest future guests. For everyone at Earthshot and Earthshot Now, thanks for listening. And remember, clean tech is cool. <laughs>